Welcome to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. I am also the co-founder of Path 11 Productions. And aside from podcasting, we also make great films and documentaries, which can be found at path11productions.com. We have a special promo code just for our podcast listeners. The promo code is PATH11PODCAST, and if you go to our website, PATH11PRODUCTIONS.COM, and visit our shop page, put that promo code in, and you will receive 50% off of our Evolution DVD, which is the third film in our PATH Trilogy series. If you would like to become a sponsor of the PATH11 Podcast, please email me at info at PATH11PRODUCTIONS.COM. And now for this week's show. So today I am joined with Lina Kohanov, and she is the author of a few books, but today we're going to talk a little bit about her recent book, The Five Roles of a Master Herder, A Revolutionary Model for Socially Intelligent Leadership. I'd like to let you know a little bit more about Linda. She's an author, a speaker, a riding instructor, and horse trainer who has become an internationally recognized innovator in the field of equine experiential learning and a respected writer on the subject of equine-facilitated psychotherapy. Her book, The Tao of Equus, A Woman's Journey of Healing and Transformation Through the Way of the Horse, was selected as one of the top 10 religion and spirituality books of 2001 by Amazon.com. Her second book, Riding Between the Worlds, Expanding Our Potential Through the Way of the Horse, was published in 2003. Both books have been used as texts in university courses across the country and have received appreciative reviews and publications as diverse as Horse and Rider, Natural Horse, Ions, uh, Noetic Science Reviews, Shift Spirituality and Health, Animal Wellness, The Equestrian News and Strides, and that's the magazine published by the North American Writing for the Handicap Association. Among her numerous lectures throughout the U.S. and Canada, she was a presenter at the 2001 NARHA conference and was the keynote speaker at the 2003 NARHA conference. She was also featured presenter at the 2004 International Transpersonal Conference. So welcome, Linda. Nice to be here, April. Yeah, so I have to say the first time I ever heard about equine therapy and using horses with therapy was back in, oh my God, it might have been even before 2008 when I had opened up a wellness center for combat veterans. And I was approached by a woman who was using horses to help treat veterans with their post-traumatic stress disorder. So that was kind of my first introduction to horses. Yes, it's actually very effective, and I have worked with um, veterans as well in this regard. So, yeah, it, it really allows people to move ahead light years and learn skills they can take back with them to the human world very efficiently. Yeah, so I, I would like to definitely get into a couple of different areas um, as we're here on the podcast and kind of talk a little bit more about the healing and also just with your expertise of, of working with horses and what they're able to bring to human beings, um, not only on a healing level, but also a very spiritual level. Um, and then we are going to get into the five roles of a master herder because it's really interesting. As, as I was reading this book, it kind of felt more like a business, a business training book of really trying to assess your own leadership skills. And I was thinking, oh, my listeners might be wondering, why did we choose you as a guest and how do we incorporate this in 
into like holistic learning and learning about ourselves. And I know that you're able to do that because I know that you also take a very holistic approach in some of the work that you do. But I also think it's important for people to understand and assess themselves and also know their different leadership styles as they're moving about in the world and trying to figure out their own paths. Yes. And, you know, I consider leadership an advanced form of personal development and spiritual development, because once you access your authentic calling in life and a vision of some kind to manifest it, you're going to need some leadership skills because you're going to have to get people involved unless it is a purely um, individual inclination. But in terms of communicating, in terms of getting people involved, in terms of manifesting any significant goal, you have to have some leadership skills. Absolutely. And um, trying to figure out where I want to go with this, I, I do want to kind of roll into the different types of leadership skills. But maybe before we do that, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your personal background and story and how did you get connect so connected with horses? Well, I have a degree in music and I was a music critic and um, program director of a radio station and head of a number of music festivals over the years. And what I noticed was that, um, first of all, the way that humans handle emotion is highly dysfunctional. So that most people are taught to suppress emotions and wear a mask of whatever emotion they think is socially acceptable. And Musicians express emotion and they get rewarded for it very dearly. But just expressing emotion doesn't get you to the next level either. Musicians can lead highly dysfunctional lives. And in, in some sense, they um, can be more dysfunctional than the average person. So I just felt like I was going crazy. And I bought a horse in my 30s, in the 1990s, to get away from people on a regular basis, just to ride off into the desert and, and feel a sense of renewal and interact with a being that, that was powerful and graceful and compassionate, but not a predator. Horses are our primary non-predatory companions in the human world, and they have a different way of being in the world and being powerful in the world that has nothing to do with predatory metaphors that we see a lot of times in the human world. And so when I was out with my horse, however, the horse would show me areas of imbalance that I had. I was used to having a certain position in life where important people would pay attention to me because they might want a good review for me, or I was, I had a position of power that was, um, already established, but the horse didn't care what degree I had. It didn't care, you know, that I interviewed Johnny Cash one week and then Witten Marsalis or Isaac Stern or Ali Akbar Khan or Ravi Shankar the following week. The horse didn't care how expensive my cowboy boots were. It, I was either um, focused and balanced and able to engage and motivate that horse through this unique combination they require, which they require you to be powerful and focused, but also bonded with them and compassionate and able to stand up to the power plays they might engage in. And so what I found was that the horses also didn't hold a grudge. So if I was out of balance one minute and the next moment I became more focused and engaged, they would reward that instantly. It was like engaging in this mind-body-spirit alignment with a powerful living feedback agent that would show me when I was out of balance and then when I started to approach becoming in balance. 
And the interesting thing was, and I didn't expect this, was that as I became more engaged with my horse in this balanced way, all of my human relationships began to improve as well. And I wasn't able for many years to articulate why that was happening. People would just notice the difference and comment and say, what are you doing exactly? And I wouldn't be able to explain it to anybody. And so being a a writer, um, I decided to write a book about this. It took me like six years to write it. And it was called The Tao of Equus. And It talked about my journey and also how over time I began to work with people to teach them to become more balanced physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually through working with horses because because I was interested in taking horse wisdom back to the human world once I could see what it did for me. Wonderful. And can you talk a little bit more about how horses kind of interact with that energy and that direct focus? Because I remember um, I had never done the equine therapy myself, but I know veterans that would go to these um, camps and come back and a couple of other friends who have done like a day workshop and they would talk about this frustration, a little bit what you were saying where how, you know, they were given directives of what they were supposed to do with the horses. Sometimes the horses wouldn't move. They couldn't lead them. You know, the human being would break down in frustration and the ego would break down a little bit because like you had said, the horse really didn't care who you were. It was just going to respond to your energy. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. Well, one of the things that is difficult is that even among humans, only 10% of human communication is verbal. So that leaves 90% of the messages we send back and forth to each other in that nonverbal range. And You know, the Buddha talked about the finger pointing to the moon. Um, Don't look at the finger, look at the moon. Um, And this is the problem with words, is that words are often the finger pointing to the moon, and people need to use the words to look at the moon. But um, it's very hard because the words that are are going to point to these nonverbal experiences are going to be severely lame. And so it just took me years and years and years to find ways of of talking about what is essentially a primarily nonverbal phenomenon. And we can talk about energy, and there is an energetic element involved that I've since learned how to talk about and teach. Um, there's there's also the horse can read your emotional state at a distance. Um, it's really seems quite magical and I don't think anybody's fully explained it yet, but they're also incredibly perceptive about emotional states. And so let me give you an example. I had a woman who I worked with who had been raped and her, um, counselor could only take her so far and her counselor heard about, um, how effective working with horses is for trauma survivors. And she brought the woman out and the woman was standing there and she was, she started to, um, access some of, uh, her frustrations in moving forward in her life after the severe event. And she started to cry and the horse was standing next to her and the horse just kind of made this frustrated sigh and just turned and walked away. And at that moment, she felt like the horse was rejecting her for crying or rejecting her experience. And I I knew enough about what was going on at the time where I said, well, no, I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's happening is that you're 
it's okay for you to be sad about this or you for you to cry about this. But there's some other emotion underneath what you're feeling right now, and the horse is picking up on that incongruence. Can you access a deeper emotion? And she started to talk, and then she started to really access the anger that she felt in being violated in this fashion. And anger is simply an emotion that gives you the energy to set boundaries and claim your space and and your own place in the world. So when your when your boundaries are violated, and rape is a tremendous boundary violation, you know the natural physiological response, the emotional message is to feel anger. And yet in our culture, anger is generally outlawed, especially for women and especially for trauma survivors a lot of times. Um, They've shown in torture situations that a person can cry and, and show fear to their torturers, but if they show anger, they get beaten or abused more severely. That 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 emotion is outlawed because that emotion is about claiming your space and your integrity. Um, a lot of times people don't use anger properly, but um, once she accessed that, she started pounding her fist on the fence post and talking about what a violation this was and how it threw her entire life off course and, you know, that this was completely unfair. And the horse immediately walked over to her stood next to her and gave and wrapped his head around her, giving her a horse hug while she was in this state of accessing the anger. And it was astonishing to her that the horse could tell the difference between these tears that were still on the surface and the anger underneath that she hadn't accessed. And because she wasn't acting out the anger toward the horse, the horse was comfortable with her anger. Wow. So it was almost like the horse was kind of saying, you're not really sad. There's something else under there. And then, you know, like you said, you facilitated that, picked up on that. And then she found the deeper emotion. And then the horse almost rewarded her for saying, hey, good job. You found it. <laughs> and, you know, it's very interesting with um, veterans is a lot of times it's the opposite for them. They might be able to, especially men. But I've also seen women veterans, too, because somehow in that culture, Anger is more accepted than sadness or grief or a feeling right. of being deeply hurt. And so a lot of times you'll see with veterans, they if you just kind of step back and leave them alone with the horse for a few minutes, the horse will stand with them and then they'll feel really deeply touched and opened up and they'll start to cry. And they haven't cried before sometimes. And they will sob um, into the neck of a horse and the horse will stand there and really be with them as they're crying. And mm -hmm. so they've accessed the grief underneath the anger that they're allowed to express. Right. Exactly. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Now with this, uh, book that you wrote, you did some research about master herders and just kind of looking at how they kind of implemented these leadership roles that we probably implement now through the herding of their animals. Yes. Well, I was, I wrote a book called the power of the herd, a non-predatory approach to social intelligence, leadership, and innovation. And that came out in 2013. And a lot of times when I write books, um, my latest one is my fifth book. I start doing research and it takes me down unexpected avenues. And so when I was researching the power of the herd, 
I was looking at leadership in multiple cultures throughout time. And I found something that totally blew me away and led to the writing of the fifth book. I found that nomadic pastoralists, these are tribes that migrate with large animals, they're actually employing a socially intelligent form of herd management and tribe management that allows these interspecies communities to move across vast landscapes. These people have to deal with predators and changing climates. They have to protect and nurture the group while also keeping massive, sometimes aggressive horses and cattle together. And here's the key. These people do not have fences and they have very little reliance on restraints. So what they're doing is they're moving and socializing free, intensely empowered animals that could simply run off. And so this becomes a metaphor for how we work with free, empowered people now. Because all the old fences in terms of dominant submission paradigms and people being stuck working for one corporation their entire life and all of that, these things are falling down now. The internet gives us information that we wouldn't have had access to 20 years ago. And, you know, if, if a corporation is playing the old dominant submission techniques, which some of them still do, clearly, you see it in politics a lot, what happens is, is that people who are your most talented employees who can really take your company or your organization or um, your nonprofit or whatever, um, your church congregation, your spiritual group, the people who are most talented and confident and creative, if you engage old dominant submission techniques with them, they leave and they might do something more infuriating. They might actually go and create their own company or nonprofit that is in competition with you, Um, (laughs) you know? And so what you find is that there are still people coming out of the woodwork who are used to playing the dominant submission games. And our current president of the United States is a great example of that. We watch him in action and we see that, you know, this, um, he's actually a person who combines what I would call the, the dominant role and the predator role. And he doesn't have access to the other three roles so easily, overemphasizes those roles. And he uses both in a more of an immature form. But what's happening is we see that he's alienating staff members left and right constantly. He's alienating people in Congress he needs to engage. And so he's somewhat effective with these more aggressive techniques. And some people see that as a form of power. And they, if he's advocating for them, they feel more secure. But in the long run, because he's dealing with free people, he, you know, he's he's not able to create the trusting coalitions he needs to in order to move a lot of his agendas forward. And so we see that in a lot of corporations where you have a really intensely dominant and predatory um, orientation in a in a major CEO figure, and. Um, A lot of talented people are going away and starting their own businesses. But then they're faced, once they start their own businesses, with the fact that they need some really sophisticated leadership skills, and a lot of people don't have them. And so when I saw this, these five roles that these master herders created, and I... You know, I thought at first of calling this book The Five Roles of a Masterful Leader, um, but then I realized that it was inaccurate to say leader because the leader is only one role of five that you need to be really effective. And so I started calling this phenomenon the master herder. 
And I use this term to describe a strong, compassionate, well-balanced leader who also acts as a caretaker and a guardian. Such a person has to master five roles of power and social influence, and they have to be able to use them interchangeably as needed. And these roles are the leader, the dominant, the nurturer companion, the sentinel, and the predator. And they need to expertly juggle these skills. And you need all five roles if you're going to deal with really empowered horses or cattle or people. Um, you need to be able to nurture individual talents. You need to moderate power plays. You need to socialize adolescents that are just learning to use their power and don't know how to use it efficiently. And you need to keep the group together during droughts and wars, as well as during times of peace and prosperity. And so once I hit on these five roles and being inspired by studying these cultures and also realizing that I had been learning to use them with my horses, they demanded that I learn to use all five roles. Once I made that conscious and was able to teach this, then what happened is my own organization completely uplifted. And I was able to see different patterns of behavior that I used to take personally as simply instinctual elements of people who are talented in different roles and overemphasize those roles. And, and I was able to understand what to do about it. And I've been teaching this around the world ever since. And people absolutely love the model and find it very useful. Yeah, and I was hoping that um, you could explain to our audience, maybe in a couple sentences, what the difference is between each role. Like, what is the leader? What's the nurturer and companion, the dominant, the sentinel, and the predator? Okay. Well, one of the interesting things that we've lost in our culture, which is a more sedentary culture, um, we've lost the understanding that in herds of large social animals, the leader animal and the dominant animal are often two different animals and that they perform certain kinds of, by engaging these roles, they can actually um, together help the group thrive. And so the leader is an animal that gets out in front and leads everybody toward the next new thing. And they're very comfortable with novel situations. They're actually attracted to novel situations when other herd members might run away from something new. They show an appropriate level of, uh, of you know, being, um, you know, safety oriented, but then they, um, step forward and they move toward this new thing, whether it's, uh, you know, a new animal or a new feature of the environment or whatever. So among people, you'll find leaders who are interested in new things. They are not afraid of novel things. They're not afraid of change. They're interested in change. And um, they tend to be the visionaries that draw others forward. And, and they tend to lead through inspiration. And dominant people and animals, on the other hand, they're orient they tend to be skeptical of the new thing. Um, and they are often the ones that lead the herd away from the new thing because their orientation is toward protection. And so anything new that happens, they are skeptical of. And so they'll, if they see a new feature of the environment, they might herd the group away from that new thing until the leader animal moves toward it and shows everyone it's okay. Dominant animals lead by or, or show influence by using a pushing or driving energy. They often drive the herd from behind, or they use a divisive energy. They'll separate the group from the new thing. 
they're really good at breaking up fights between animals. So, you know, if you have to break up fights between people or, who are in a power play, you need to be able to have the appropriate use of the dominant role or you're pretty useless. Um, and so sometimes, I mean, my orientation was to lead um, through the leader role and through inspiration and attraction to new things and new ideas. But because I would abdicate the dominant role, if I had people coming behind me who were engaged in some kind of power play, I wouldn't break it up. I wouldn't break up the situation soon enough. I would just try to inspire people to get along and let's focus on the vision. And yet at times people were in conflict and I wouldn't put a stop to it soon enough. And as a result, factions would be created and I might eventually have to use the predator role in the sense of firing somebody because I refuse to use the dominant role soon enough. And so that's where I learned, wow, you know, I need to really understand how to use this role effectively. And I had to use the role effectively with horses because I was raising a lot of horses that were adolescent horses who were also naturally dominant. And so to stand up to them, I had to use the dominant role, but in a mature, non-abusive way. And I had to break up fights between horses. I just was doing this yesterday. I had to break up a fight between a couple of horses. And I had to get in there and use the dominant role to do that. But if you just concentrate on the leader and or the dominant role, you can't really gain the trust that you need to have the herd want to be with you, want to stay with you, want to follow you. You really need the nurturer companion role. And... Um, so these tribes that work with large animals, they spend much of their day in the nurture and co companion role. They help calves and horses be born. They milk cows. They spend a lot of time scratching the animals, which releases a, a hormone called oxytocin, which buffers the flight or fight response in favor of a calm and connect response in both the animals and the humans. And so in the five roles of a master herder, I talk rather extensively about oxytocin um, and its position now as a hormone that shows us that nature has a heart and that nature really is about forming trusting relationships rather than overemphasizing a flight or fight mode. Mm. And then there's the sentinel and the predator roles. But I wondered if you had any comments or questions before we got to that. No, I think it's great how you're kind of flowing it all in and using the examples. And uh, I really like that that example that you gave about how you needed to learn a little bit more about that dominant role and not skipping over that going into the predator role. Because the one thing that you also mentioned, and as you're going in to explain these last two roles, is that, of course, you know, when you're reading this book and you have a great test in the back. So for those listeners who are listening to these um, different roles and you're not quite sure who you might be, there's a nice little survey that you could take that will uh, show you through your scores which role you might be more of. But I would think that most of us are going to have the reaction of, oh, gosh, I hope I'm not a predator. I don't want to play the predator role. But you also gave some examples where you said sometimes that really is appropriate and necessary, that we do need to, as you said, have a holistic balance of all of these five roles in order to function well. And the key really is to do what the master herders do in these cultures is they separate the leader, the dominant, the nurture companion, and sentinel roles from the predator role. So the tendency among many people is to combine the dominant and the predator role. They don't really understand these, these are two different things, and that if you're going to really use the dominant role effectively, you must not combine it with the predator role. That's where it becomes really destructive. Um, the predator role actually keeps life in balance with available resources. So among horses, they don't, they're not predators. 
Um, and so they very clearly show the non-predatory use of the dominant role. You do not need the predator role to protect yourself or the group. Dominant horses can drive off lions and wolves. The key with the dom non-predatory dominant role is they use it for protection. And when the aggressor backs off, they let that lion or wolf go and they go back to grazing. They don't seek it out and hunt it down. So any kind of revenge or grudge holding behavior in humans is a factor associated with the idea that we are part predators. We're, we're omnivores. We have the teeth of a vegetarian and we have the eyes forward like lions and wolves. But um, it causes us Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde moments when we don't know how to use those roles effectively. Um, so the predator role is comes in when you have to say, wow, there's been a change in the economy and maybe I have to cut some programs at this time. And maybe as a result of that, I might have to lay some people off. If you don't engage that quickly enough, you might actually have your whole company or your whole organization go under. Um, we also need the predator role when we need to cull belief systems and habits in ourselves that are keeping us from moving forward. So you can think of your inner lion as the one that's helping you, you know, cull beliefs about yourself, um, beliefs about the way life works that are now standing in direct contrast to what you're opening up to. So it's when we use the predator role as humans, we're very rarely actually killing someone. We're actually cutting programs or having to make difficult decisions about laying people off. Um, I had to use the predator role recently when I decided to do more writing and more touring internationally. I had to cull part of my herd because anytime I left, if I had 15 horses on my property and I was going to Europe to do speaking engagements and teaching, I'm supporting an entire herd at home while I'm on the road. So I didn't kill any of my horses. I simply reevaluated the herd and I found out which horses needed to find other homes and which horses were the ones that I needed to keep in my herd. So, you know, a lot of times I see that people who refuse to use the dominant role, and I was one of them, will actually jump to the predator role. So a lot of times people who are really overemphasizing the nurture companion role will be really kind and supportive and engaged with people. And whether these are people a part of your spiritual community or your nonprofit or your business, a nurture companion will just kind of be there and helping people. And then sooner or later, because they're not going to use the dominant role and get more directive and more assertive, they'll revert to the predator role. So they'll be nice and supportive and supportive. And then finally, they're like, this person just isn't getting it. They have to go now. So then the nurturer companion, one of the characteristics of overemphasizing that role is that their predator score will actually be higher than their dominant score because they'll go to the predator role rather than the uncomfortable element of using the dominant role. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that was going to be, it's kind of tied into one of the other questions that I had, have you ever noticed or come across people who maybe refuse to play any of the roles, but just get very stuck in one and that could be extremely detrimental? Oh yeah. You see it a lot. Usually it's, most people are pretty good at two, maybe three roles, but you really need all five to, to excel 
in life and get yourself to the next level. So for instance, I need all five roles when I write a book. So this isn't even just about interacting with other people. Sometimes you need all five roles to do some kind of an ambitious individual project. Um, but every, and I explain this in the book rather extensively, is that every single one of these roles has a shadow side when you overemphasize that role. It can be very destructive. Um, with the leader role, people who overemphasize that role tend to get way too far out in front of others. And they, they're always focusing on the vision. So everybody can Everybody behind them or underneath them or a part of the organization can actually see this person as quite an inspirational visionary, but they will often notice that they'll feel like this person doesn't care about them or that this person um, has a low tolerance level for what they need, the training they need, or, or the, the nuts and bolts of getting something done. You have a lot of visionary leaders that get out there, and they're so inspirational, but they look aloof and self-absorbed to everybody else. And um, they tend to have a really low tolerance for um, interpersonal difficulties that others have. They're like, hey, you know, our organization is here designed to, you know, feed the homeless in Tucson. And you're back here having some kind of argument with, you know, focus on the vision, people. I don't have time for this. Um, you'll also find that leaders who overemphasize the role will can only get so far in an organization that they're creating because if they abdicate the dominant role, they um, they don't they have a lot of trouble delegating. And they have a lot of trouble getting resistant people back on task. And they have a lot of trouble um, motivating people um, who who are resistant in some fashion. And so you'll you'll often hear somebody like this say, well, you know, it's just easier to do it myself. And so they'll become workaholics. But you can only get so far as an individual in an organization that needs to improve. You need that dominant role if you're going to be a true visionary leader. Great. Yes. Thank you. That, that's what I was hoping for. I wanted to hear about the shadow sides of, of, of some of these as well. Now, how do you find, um, do who usually pulls you in to help consult? I mean, I know that you're writing books, but you're, you also provide quite a bit of workshops and are you doing this more for, um, like corporate America businesses? Are you doing stuff for nonprofits or what, how do you find people are using this wonderful knowledge that you have? Well, I find that um, I've done this work in churches. Um, I I did this. Um, I did a one day indoor workshop at a United Methodist Church in Lubbock, Texas, a couple of years ago, um, because churches and spiritual communities they have a lot of trouble um, sometimes having people come together and get along and move toward ambitious goals. Um, everything is nice and spiritual on the surface, but underneath there's power plays, there's people acting out in different ways. You know, there's people getting mad and leaving the organization because somebody else in the organization is too domineering, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. I've used it a lot in social service agencies. Um, you know, social workers and counselors, nonprofits. Um, I've, I've taken this piece to the Best Friends Animal Society, which is one of the largest um, animal rescue organizations in the world, actually. And um, in social service agencies and nonprofits and animal rescue organizations, you tend to have a large number of people who have an orientation toward the nurture or companion role. 
And when people overemphasize that role, they can become very toxic to an environment. But their power goes underground so that they engage in a lot of passive aggressive moves. And um, they're conflict averse, but they will also go straight from the overuse of the nurture companion to cutting people out of their lives or giving coworkers the silent treatment or seeing somebody as bad and wrong. And, um, you know, just by giving somebody the silent treatment in an organization, you can prevent large numbers of people from doing their job. And factions can be created. And so there's all kinds of dysfunctions that occur. But once people learn, everyone in an organization learns how to use all five roles, what you find is that a lot of the dysfunction suddenly disappears. And when there is conflict, people have some additional and very thoughtful tools to use. And when you pair that with people who've actually done the training with the horses, and we work with horses on the ground to teach assertiveness combined with compassion and how to gain someone's trust while also holding your ground and making sure that, that you remain safe with a thousand pound animal. So once you get that balance in yourself, you know, a 200 pound coworker who's, who's a bit on the dominant side is kind of laughable because... You've already dealt with a thousand pound horse in this fashion. And so what I found is that the nonverbal techniques that I use with dominant horses, when I use them with people, they don't even really know what I've done um, unless they've gone through the training themselves. But I can gain their cooperation. I can stand up for myself, but also gain their trust and cooperation at the same time and get them back moving with me again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, you know, as you're talking and one of the things that you said earlier, what I really liked was once you really had everything in balance, you were able to look at people differently, probably able to recognize these different roles, not take things as personally. I also think that, um, you know, this would be a great book for moms that have a lot of kids, <laughs> you know, or even teachers or, you know, just looking at the different personalities in the family system it doesn't even have to be in the work environment, but understanding, you know, who everybody is in a family and the family system and how that works as well. Oh, absolutely. I've actually worked with Dr. Rebecca Bailey, who um, who's best known as the counselor who helped J.C. Dugard um, heal after being kidnapped for 18 years in California. And I've, I've had the opportunity to work with Rebecca and J.C. Um, in creating the five roles for use in family systems therapy and in high conflict divorce situations. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Rebecca Bailey... Um, works with people who have suffered from the worst form of human predatory behavior you can imagine. And learning to use all five roles in helping families who've, who are coming back together after extreme situations to learn to use all five roles has really been um, a profound and healing experience. Um, because, you know, here's the thing. Abuse survivors, for instance have to go to work, most of them, you know? So if, you, if you've had abuse in your background, at a certain point, you're gonna do some healing work with a counselor, ideally, but at another point, you have to have skills to move forward with your life. So these skills are for everybody. And um, 
it's it's like the step that happens beyond initial healing for trauma survivors. It's about learning how to really thrive in life. Um, but it also helps you make sense of crazy human behavior and not take it personally anymore. Right. <laughs> yes. And I would say on the personal level, really what you're teaching in this is how to be more integrated within yourself. Absolutely. And then, you know, there's a lot of... Um, when we do the workshops and trainings with people, with the horses, there are a lot of nonverbal elements and energetic elements and tools that people are learning to use um, that I can't even write about in the book. So I, I think a great way to see one of these tools in action that would be of interest to um, your um, particular audience is a YouTube video that I put up recently and you can just go onto YouTube and put in my name, Kohanov, that's K-O-H-A-N as in Nick, O-V as in Victor, and then put the words with it, heart breathing, Kohanov heart breathing, and watch that video. And what you'll see me doing is you'll see some of the horses that I work with, but you'll also see me working with a particular horse that is extremely sensitive and also extremely dominant, although that I don't really get into that in this situation, but I show a breathing technique that causes a horse that's looking somewhere else to turn and look at me and walk to me without me saying a word or moving a muscle. It's a breathing technique. And so it, this is something that you have to say, wow, there's something energetic happening here because, you know, I'm not doing anything other than changing my breathing and doing a specific kind of heart breathing that connects with the horse. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to check that out. And maybe you can also let our listeners know where they can find more information about you and the workshops that you provide as well. Yes. Um, my primary website is eponaquest.com. And that's E, P as in Paul, O, N as in Nick, A, Q-U-E-S-T.com, eponaquest.com. I also have another website called masterherder.com that really is more specifically about the leadership elements. Um, eponaquest.com will have some workshops of interest to your audience, such as um, a workshop where I do really teach people these additional energetic nonverbal elements. Um, it's called Beyond Words, The Art and Science of Sentient Communication. And I would highly recommend that to anyone. I mean, people have said it's the best personal development workshop they've ever taken in their lives. And um, it really teaches you how to influence each other people in positive ways um, through totally nonverbal means, energetic means, using emotions as information without mentioning the emotions themselves, um, ways of understanding what's going on at that nonverbal level and using that information consciously to affect positive change in yourself and others. Wow, that sounds great too. Yeah, I, you know, and I've I've heard it. I know it personally, just in the work that I do, and uh, just you know, experiencing life that a lot of most of our communication is nonverbal. Absolutely. Well, you know, here's the interesting thing: is when I was writing the Power of the Herd too. Also, I found that there were a number of exceptional leaders and social innovators in the world who were also exceptional horsemen. And that includes George Washington. He was considered the finest horse trainer in the colonies, as well as, you know, someone who was able to function in such a way that he literally helped us win the Revolutionary War against incredible odds. And 
he is a man who had the master herder skills and he learned them from working with large animals. But another person who was an exceptional horseman is the Buddha, Prince Siddhartha, before he um, left and became the Buddha, was also considered the finest horse trainer in his kingdom. And he actually won his hand, Yashodara's, his the hand of his wife, Yashodara, he won her hand in marriage by taming a very violent stallion. And one of the things I talk about in The Power of the Herd, I do specifically talk about this instance with the Buddha and how I was able to see that a lot of the mindfulness skills he was later teaching, he would have learned from working with horses. And I show how that happened. So a lot of times, People don't realize how much they're influenced by what these amazing, wise animals have been teaching our leaders, our innovators for centuries. Well, you've definitely inspired me to go and check out some of this equine therapy. I know we have um, a small little farm around here that's doing that. Um, and I know that I had a couple of friends go to a workshop. And I've I've never worked with horses personally myself, but anybody that has talked about them, I've always been very intrigued. And my cousin, when I was a young girl, once put me on a donkey and I fell off of it and it like walked over me. And I think that's where my fear of larger um, horse-like animals has come from. And I've never really got connected with horses from that experience. But um, it's definitely something that I want to try, and especially after reading your book and speaking to you and knowing what I do know about other people's experiences with the horses, I'm pretty fascinated to go and try this out. I think it's going to be one of yes. my, my goals this year of 2018. Well, I think that, you, you know, you have to keep in mind that what I'm teaching is different than equine therapy. Right. Um, so a lot of times when you go to equine, an equine therapy program, you're getting some, some different kinds of skills than I, I tend to work in the field of equine facilitated learning where I'm teaching advanced human development skills through work with horses. Um, and so there are some similarities and there are places where they intersect, but, um, you know, an equine therapy program isn't necessarily going to teach you the skills that I'm talking about. But on my website, oponaquest.com, as well as the Master Herder website, I do have a list of instructors worldwide who actually have gone through an extensive training program to learn how to teach the skills I'm talking about. And so you might go on the website and look up and see where is an Oponaquest or Master Herder instructor in your general area. Where are okay. you located, by the way? Great. I'm located in New York. Okay. Yeah. We do have some people in, in New York and Connecticut and, and that vicinity. Yeah. Okay, great. Yep. I see it right on your website. I will definitely check that out. Thank you for, um, you know, making and distinguishing the difference between the both. So that that's helpful as well. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our interview and thanks for being a guest here on the Path 11 podcast. I'm sure our listeners definitely got a lot out of this one and I would definitely recommend everybody to go out and uh, get this read, The Five Roles of a Master Herder. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, April. I really enjoyed it. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time!